to what degree does Hashem involve himself in the details of running the lives of people who are not Jewish? Would you believe that we're going to learn a tremendous insight into this particular area based on Rashi's commentary on how Yoshua and Kalev wanted to defend the position to go into Eretz Yisrael and to tell everybody not to be afraid? We've explained numerous times that Rashi's commentary on the Torah, even though its primary objective is to explain the simplest understanding, as Rashi has said so many times, right from the very first part, where he says, I'm only here to explain Pshat. That's true. And in addition to that, Rashi also includes amazing insights from the other areas of Torah, even the secrets, esoteric parts of Torah. As the Altar says, quoted in the that Rashi's commentary on the Chumash is like the wine of Torah. Wine, of course, is the secrets that get exposed, like the grape's juice that gets turned into wine. And... <clears throat> If you want to get to those amazing insights, and the esoteric part, that are contained in Rashi's commentary, the only way to do it is, you first have to understand the simple understanding of what Rashi wants to convey, because even those amazing insights, and the so-called wine and esoteric depth of Torah, Rashi embedded all of that amazing information in what he writes in the Pshat. And that's what we're going to do over here. We're going to look at the Pshat and understand certain things that Rashi says that at first glance seem to be surprising. And then based on that, dig deeper into the world of Halacha and then deeper still into the world of Primia Satoya. So Gabba Pasha saying, We're going to see in our parasha a Rashi that contains amazing insights in the halachic element of Torah, as well as the esoteric. The only way we can get there is we first have to look at the pshat. So what uh, what rashis are we going to talk about? In our parasha, amongst the various sukkim that talk about how Yoshua and Kalev, the two spies who got it right, defended to the Jewish people how they would be able to go into Eretz Yisrael. One of the lines is Ksiv, the Pasuk tells us, They say to the Jewish people, don't rebel against Hashem. And don't fear the people who live in the land. Because they're like bread to us. Their shade of protection has left them. So Rashi takes all of these phrases and explains them. Rashi. So Rashi says, first and foremost, Altim Roidu, that expression that says, don't rebel, Rashi says, Not only should you not rebel, but in addition to that, you shouldn't be afraid at all. Now the Mephoshim want to know, why does Rashi explain that Altim Roidu means, and also, don't be fearful? The Pasuk already said, don't be fearful. So a whole string of the commentators on Rashi all say the same thing. That Kavanas Rashi what Rashi wants to illustrate to us is Shem Vatem Al The second part of the pasuk that says, "And you don't be afraid," is not another subject or another message. But it's the direct outcome. If you don't rebel against Hashem, then that would mean that you're not afraid. Right? If you're not rebelling, then automatically you're not afraid. That's how the Mephoshim explain it. Rashi is just showing that it's a continuum rather than two separate messages. 
Why is that so important to know? Why is it that Rashi points this out according to the Mephoshim? Because look at the phrases and you'll see that in each phrase there's a slight difference in how the language is used. When it tells us, when they said to the Jewish people, don't rebel against Hashem, they first clarified who not to rebel against. To Hashem, don't rebel. Whereas when it comes to saying, don't be afraid, it says, don't be afraid, and then afterwards qualifies, of who? The inhabitants of the land. Or possibly you could say that it doesn't say, don't be, rebel and don't be afraid, but says, and you don't be afraid, then implies that it's kind of the outcome. And so therefore, according to all of these commentators, because of the linguistic structure of the Pasuk, it indicates to us that do not rebel means that then you won't be afraid. That's how most of the Mephoshim explained it, and the Rebbe has one question. It's difficult to explain Rashi from this perspective. Because as we well know, and we've learned many times before, Rashi will only use as his headline the words that he intends to explain. So, if Rashi wants to explain what the Mephoshim are arguing, that the Al-Timroidu leads to the Al-Tiru, then when Rashi should have brought a headline, it should have said, He should have said, And if you don't rebel against Hashem, you'll have no reason to be afraid of your enemies. Plus, he should have also inferred the words that follow, Don't be afraid of the people. At the very least, to allude to the fact that that's part of the commentary by saying, etc., because according to the commentators, it is those key words, Bahashem and Ve'atem Altiru, that give this perspective. If you don't rebel, that will mean you're not going to be afraid. Rashi doesn't do that. The fact that Rashi excludes the word Bahashem from the headline, and doesn't even allude to the following words that come later in the Pasuk, move on that implies that what really compels Rashi to explain the way that he does, is the foundation of that explanation, who, it's actually not from the wording and the linguistic style of the Pasuk, and but it's the theme and the message of do not rebel that already tells Rashi that means don't be afraid and we need to understand why. Now before we can explain that, we're going to look at other things that Rashi explains about this Pasuk which raise questions of their own. So The next thing Rashi explains is the, the term that they use. They say, they're like our bread. Rashi explains that means we'll be able to swallow them up, eat them, devour them like a person eats bread. Now, this is going to raise a few questions for us, and they're actually quite simple questions when you think about it. First of all, what's Rashi telling us that we wouldn't have known? If you read that Pasuk that says they're like our bread, what else would you have thought other than they're easy to conquer? Surely it's self-understood. If you call people our bread, Obviously, you don't intend that we're cannibals and we're going to eat them like bread. It's very obviously metaphoric, and it very obviously implies that just as easy as it is to eat bread, that's how easy it will be for these people to fall under our hands. So why did Rashi have to explain it at all? 
And on the other hand, if in fact the Pasuk or you're showing Kalev one to say that the conquest will be as simple as eating a piece of bread, so the truth is, what's the difference if it's bread or any other kind of food? The Torah could have really said this much more simply, said, we'll eat them. Instead of saying, we'll swallow them alive. Or something like that. Stam, without the details. Why would the Torah insist that it has to be dafka like bread? And Rashi pulls out that we'll eat them like bread. And Gimel Adarabah, to the contrary. In fact, Rashi should have said, Lachmenu means they're like food. Instead of sticking with a specific word, bread, he should have actually interpreted it to mean food. As we've seen so many times in the Torah, that bread is used to represent food in general. And lastly, technical question. Why does Rashi say in his headline, because there are our bread, and then he doesn't explain the meaning of the word key because he only explains what bread is. Okay, so what do we have so far? There's something about Altimroidu that thematically tells us it means, and don't be afraid, when you don't rebel against Hashem, you won't be afraid. There's something obviously about the significance of bread specifically that Rashi wants to allude to, and we don't know what it is. And now let's look further. Rashi then says, and their protective um, shade or a protective canopy has left them. So Rashi now gives two explanations for what that could mean. First he says, whatever was their shield and their strength, which was Kesheim Shebohem, those decent Canaanites, Mesu, they've all died. And another possibility is Eov Shayim that Eov may well, the great suffering servant Eov, who may well have lived at that time, at least according to Rashi over here, and he had passed away, so his protective spiritual benefits were depleted and they were now exposed. One explanation. There were great people amongst the Canaanites who were gone, and so they had no reason to be protected. Dovar Acher, then he offers a second explanation. It means that Hashem's protective canopy was removed from them. Obvious question. Why does Rashi give two answers? Whenever Rashi does give two answers, that implies that each one of them has an advantage over the other. In which case, what is the advantage of each of these two interpretations? Okay, so three Rashis, each of which has questions that we have to address. Why would you naturally understand, says Rashi, from Altim Roy, do not to rebel against Hashem, that that automatically means you won't be fearful? Why this metaphor, this obsession with the metaphor of bread specifically? And why the two explanations about what it means that the protection was removed from these people. Sabir Bepirish Rashi will start first, remember, explaining the Pshat. Once we've got the Pshat correct, then we'll go to the halachic element and then to the spiritual element. Let's start from the first Rashi. How is Rashi absolutely convinced that the expression don't rebel against Hashem means and therefore you won't be afraid? It's not two separate messages. How is Rashi so clear about that? Who the reason is? Because look at the context. There's actually good reason to be afraid. We're already told, When the spies came back, one of the first things they said is, those people who live in that land, they're a powerful nation. And all of them are large people of stature. In fact, we were to them, as we were to ourselves, like grasshoppers. So they made all these allegations. 
Yeshua and Kalev never objected to that assessment that there are really powerful people living in Canaan. So if they're really powerful people living in, in Canaan, then it's normal to be afraid. So then Vakasha it makes it difficult to expect How could Yeshua and Kalev, who acknowledge the scary reality of the nations who live there, then tell the people, but don't be afraid, without explaining why not to be afraid. Now, so the truth is, when you know the rest of the story, this is actually an even bigger question, because after the whole debacle with the spies ends in all of them dying and that horrible plague that affected the spies and the Jews being told they're going to be in the desert for 40 years, the next morning there was a group who got up early, of they said, that's it, we're going to Israel now. What did Moshe Rabbeinu reply to them? He warned them. Don't go there. Because if you do, you're going to be harmed because the nations who are there, Canaanites and Amalekites, they're out to get you. And they have power. So there you see, even Moshe Rabbeinu said, there's a reason to be afraid of these people. So, so why, how, on, on what basis did Yoshua and Kalev say, don't be afraid? This is what's bothering Rashi. Another angle that we have to understand about Yoshua and Kalev's seeming ignoring this issue. When Yoshua and Kalev told the Jews, don't rebel against Hashem, what were they trying to say? They were trying to say, They were saying there's an instruction from Hashem to go to Israel. Don't reject that instruction. Don't rebel against that instruction. Vim Cain, and if that is their attitude, which it clearly is, well, if that's what they intended, they should have said so. They should have said, let's go to Israel. We can do this. Why did they speak in such general terms? Don't rebel against Hashem. Say simply, don't reject Hashem's instruction to go to Israel. All of those are the things that con- that compel Rashi. That's what Rashi addresses in his commentary. Don't rebel against Hashem. Means that therefore you won't be afraid. In other words, Yeshua Kalev Omru, Yeshua and Kalev wanted to communicate to the Jewish people. The only way not to be afraid, because According to rational thinking, you should be afraid. So the only way not to be afraid is only if you're not rebelling against Hashem. Because the facts on the ground are omnom ozalma yeshavorets. They really are powerful people. Which means there's a logical reason to be afraid of them. And in spite of that logic, if you don't rebel against Hashem, which means if you fulfill Hashem's instruction and Hashem's will, which is that we go to Israel, then shuv, that's going to cause a result. Then there'll be no cause for fear, even in a natural, rational sense, even if it's a powerful nation. What's the difference? We have Hashem on our side. Why would you? So therefore, only if you don't rebel against Hashem and you therefore have Hashem's backing, will you be in a position where you have no reason to be afraid of these people? That's why Yoshua and Kalev said, Bashem al Timroidu, a broader statement, don't rebel against Hashem, without being specific, that the practical application is go to Israel. 
because it's not just the application, it's the attitude. Because not rebelling against Hashem is the thing that neutralizes the strength and power of these people. Which is the only reason not to be afraid, because their strength will be taken from them through Hashem's backing of us. And of course, you'll go to Israel. You don't have to spell that out. That's obviously what's going to happen next. So now we have clarity on why Rashi only uses the word altim roidu, the phrase altim roidu, as his headline, because the altim roidu is the catalyst for the, the altiru, why you wouldn't be afraid. Now that we know that we're not going to be afraid of those people because we have Hashem on our side, now we can understand why Rashi says his next commentary, means that our bread will eat them like bread. Why? Because Khan Efshar, you might have read this, and you might have felt compelled to interpret You might have seen the word that they're our bread and translated it literally as our bread. Meaning what? We'll see in a second. In other words, there's two things that bread could imply. One which Rashi is telling us and one which we might have thought otherwise. Without Rashi's commentary, we would have looked at the word and said, they're our bread, and thought, one second. Bread is a staple food. So to call the nations in Canaan our bread may imply, we would have thought, that it's a staple, it's an absolute requirement, it's a fundamental thing we have to do to get rid of them. Just like you have to eat bread every day, you have to get rid of these people. In other words, it's an instruction rather than an assurance. And that would explain why it's dafka bread and not other kinds of more generic foods. And that would have explained the because, because they are our our uh, bread, meaning to say, we've already learned that we shouldn't be afraid of them because Hashem's going to have our back. And because we have a responsibility, because we are required to conquer these nations as a person needs to eat bread. That's why it has to be that we won't be afraid. We have to believe that we have this responsibility to go and attack and conquer these people. That's what you would have possibly misinterpreted Lachmenu to mean. But once we see that Rashi is saying Al-Tiru is not an instruction, it is a natural outcome. If you don't rebel against Hashem, then you'll have no reason to fear. Because you're now going with Hashem's power. So then you can no longer say, don't be afraid of them because you have this job to do. Like you have to eat bread, you have to conquer them. It's no longer part of the instruction. So what is the meaning of Rachmenu? In fact, the truth is that that would have raised a big question. We know the end of the story. They spent another 39 years wandering around in the desert. Now, if it was an obligation that is as required as bread is required for your diet, then how could they have deferred it for 39 years, even after the debacle of the spies? And therefore Rashi had to say very clearly that Lechem over here does not mean the level of obligation that we have, but rather the ease with which we'll be able to conquer them, like eating bread. 
The reason the Torah compares our enemies to food and specifically to bread is not because of the staple diet nature of bread and therefore the requirement to conquer. But rather to illustrate the ease, like it's easy to eat bread. So easy will it be for the Jewish people to conquer Eretz Yisrael. Now, more specifically, what is the big deal about what's so great about eating bread? Rashi doesn't have to get into that level of detail. Because the five-year-old who's now learning Chumash has already seen previously that there's something special about bread. Rashi, as Rashi himself said in Parashas B'Shalach, when the Jewish people complained about food and they said we need bread and we need meat, so Rashi says, bread, that was an appropriate thing to ask for. And therefore, the way Hashem gave it to them in the form of the mon was with love and with a glowing face, as opposed to the meat, which they got as the slav birds, which was with all kinds of negative associations. So we can now bring that information into our conversation. When the Torah says that our enemies are like our bread, which Rashi explains means we'll swallow them up like a person eats bread. Move on. We're not just talking about the ease. What it implies, obviously, is that Hashem will hand us the capacity to conquer our enemies in a way that we feel Hashem's love and this glowing face-to-face relationship like Hashem gives us bread. So He'll deliver our enemies into our hands. In other words, it's not just telling us the ease, but the love of Hashem that goes with the deliverance of our enemies into our hands when we conquer Eretz Yisrael. And that will explain also why you shouldn't be afraid. Don't be afraid because they're like bread. Don't be at all afraid of the inhabitants of the land. Because the is going to give them into our hands in the most loving way. So now we get it. Altim Roidu leads us to Altiru, that the whole issue over here is the only reason not to be afraid of our enemies is only if we don't rebel against Hashem, so we have Hashem behind us. And now we understand the comparison to bread, because the great thing about bread is that it indicates not just a staple food, but tremendous love from Hashem towards us, which would be illustrated to the Jewish people at the time of the conquest of Israel. Leaves us with one last thing. What's this protective canopy that's removed? Why does Rashi have to explain it from two perspectives? So when Rashi gets to these two explanations of the protective, uh, whatever you want to call it, the protective canopy being removed from them, actually at first glance, the second explanation seems to be a better explanation than the first because Rashi says when he gives the second explanation, the divine protection will be removed from on them, which is the same language as the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Whereas the first explanation, when Rashi wants to quote the part of the Pasuk that would be relevant to both commentaries, he only uses the words, their protection has been removed, without the word, from on them. Let's understand what the significance of this is. So first let's look and analyze this word sar. It means to be de- 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 uh, deflected or, or removed from them. 
removed from on them. That implies that whatever was in a particular place is now being moved, displaced from that environment. But it's been displaced somewhere else. But it hasn't disappeared. And that's what sor implies. Something has been deflected or displaced, but not removed, not d- destroyed. Now, if you go with the first explanation Rashi brings, which says, that their protection was the decent Canaanites, and they've now died, then sorry is not the right word, because whatever was their protection is gone. The word sorry is not really the right word for that. And it certainly is not appropriate to say it's been displaced from them. No, they haven't gone to protect someone else. They're gone. So therefore, because of the weakness in that language with regards to the first explanation, prompts Rashi to bring a second explanation. That when it talks about their protection, it means the divine protection that they have. And then to use the word that it's been deflected or displaced or, or moved elsewhere makes a lot of sense. And it certainly makes sense to say it's been removed from them because divine protection always exists. It's never going to disappear. As we know from Noyach that Hashem promised that he would always keep a covenant to, to uh, maintain the human species. As we say in Tehillim, Hashem shows compassion to all of his creations. It would be appropriate to say it's just moved from that group of people. They no longer have this divine protection that would fit perfectly. So we understand why Rashi has to insert a second explanation. Although the truth is that even with that first explanation, you could kind of squeeze an answer to say, the expression that the Hashem's protection is moved from them or their protection was moved from them. Even though the reality is that their, their protection is gone, the people have died. But because there's a way to squeeze it in and say it's their protection that has now left them, you could kind of make it work. So Rashi still brings it, and there's a reason he also brings it as the first explanation, because because according to the first explanation, when Yeshua and Kalev said their protection is gone, which basically means that the, the good people of their nation have died, so you could, it's an ambiguous term. Tzilam could mean those people are their protection. Or Tzilam could mean their protection, where the emphasis is on those who are being protected. Who is being protected? We could say, well, those people who were their protection are gone. So Tzilam their protection, has left them. Sorry, uh, skipped a line over there. Um, and therefore you don't have to be afraid of them. What, what do we care about? Is the Jewish people trying to get into Eretz Yisrael? We don't care about what happened to their protection. We just care about the fact that they, the people, are in a particular sense, and in this case, they, in the sense of not having protection, that's what we care about. They're vulnerable. That's what we care about. Therefore, we shouldn't be afraid of them. Because they no longer have protection. Even though the 
practical reality is that it's not just that they were displaced, they actually died. But what's relevant to us is that they, they don't have protection. Of course, it doesn't fit so smoothly into the words. And that's how Rashi brings a second commentary as well. Okay, so we get it. There's two perspectives on, on how Rashi arrived at this, and each one has a particular insight that the other one seemed to be lacking. But the bottom line is to suggest that the protection that's left them is those individuals who shielded and strengthened them, the great people of Canaan, are gone. And the truth is, according to the simplest understanding of the of the Psukim, that actually makes sense to be presented as the first commentary. Look at the context. The context is how are those people? Should we be afraid of those people? How strong are those people? So it lends itself to say that their protection comes from their people, from those people. They are those who protect them. More than to say, rather than to say the uh, the protection, the divine protection. And if you really want to be technical, the Torah could have then said, their protection has left them, rather than their protection has left them. That's how Rashi opts to put that explanation first, because their protection sounds like their people who merit to protect them. Okay, so we've now addressed all of the questions that we had about Rashi's different commentaries. Now, based on this, we're going to see how Rashi actually describes for us a very interesting halachic debate. Rashi, one of the amazing insights from Rashi is that these two explanations we've now said, whether the protection that has left is divine protection or protection of the great people within their nation, is actually something that reflects and depends on the two opinions of the Rambam and the Raivad, who is the most common, uh, so to speak, debater with the Rambam's halachic opinions about an issue that seems to have nothing to do with our topic. The Rambam says as follows, If a non-Jewish person shechts an animal, that animal is considered in the same halachic category as if it had not been shechted at all, if it died of other consequences, other causes. Therefore, if you carry that animal, it makes the person who carries it impure. And then he gets into detail, whether it's an idolater, or the kutim, who were... Some say the the, the Christians, or Ger Toshav, or if it's somebody who's living in Eretz Yisrael, observing the seven Noachat laws. Either way, Shechitos and Nevela. If any of those people shecht, the animal is considered a Nevela, a carcass. Then the Rambam continues. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say, that this is a rabbinic law. Because the fact that a person becomes impure from touching an idol or anything that had been involved in the rituals around an idol would become impure. That is rabbinic. So this is probably rabbinic as well. And the, the Raiva debates that. And he writes, Non-Jewish people have the same halachic um, constitution with regards to purity and impurity as an animal. They cannot make things impure. And they don't become impure. And he bases it on a, 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 an expression that we use by the Akedah, that there Avraham Avinu says you wait with the donkey, and from that the Gemara says that they have the same halachic status as the donkey. As the Pasuk says, that the, the, non, the, the nations of the world are like drops in a bucket. And they're all, so to speak, a, a wind can kind of carry them away. 
says the Ravid, anybody who gives a non-Jewish person any halachic status in order to have the impact of making something impure, impure it's like trying to catch wind in your hands. So the Kesef Mishnah, who's one of the classic commentators on the Rambam, asks a question on the Ravid's perspective. Because, here we're talking about whether a non-Jewish person shechting an animal renders that animal in the status of an evader like a carcass. Why is the arrival bringing up the question of whether a non-Jewish person could become impure or make something else impure? We're not trying to work out the halachic status of the non-Jewish person here. If they have the capacity to make this animal impure or not. <laughs> we're looking at their shechita. Does their shechita render this a kosher animal or not? So the, the Kesef Mishnah says this is like a bit of a mixed message. Now the Rogachovet will explain how this all works. So the Rogachovet explains where the Ravid is coming from. And he says something beautiful, fascinating. When would a person have the capacity to shecht an animal in such a way that would mess up the, the, the status of that animal and make that animal a nevela. It's only possible if the person who's killing the animal has a particular halachic designation. But if he has no halachic designation, then he can't have any impact. In other words, if he doesn't exist in the halachic framework, he can't have a negative impact on an halachic outcome. That says the Rav is exactly what the Rav is saying. Seeing as we know in the halachic rubric, the non-Jewish person has the same halachic designation as an animal. In other words, no halachic designation, and therefore can't become impure or make something impure. That implies that they are like that air. They have, they have no substance. Therefore, that implies that they could never have an impact on an halachic reality to make an animal into what is considered an avela, in other words, something that can make somebody impure. Therefore, the rivet's attitude is, of course, if an non-Jewish person shechts an animal, it's not kosher, and it falls into the category of an avela. But that's It's not because the non-Jewish person has damaged that animal. It's just simply that it's like nothing happened. And of course, if an animal dies without any cause, in the rules of Shechita, then naturally it's going to be in the classification of a Nevela, as if it was an animal that died of its, of its own natural causes. Now the fact that the Ravid specifically brought up the fact that a non-Jewish person can't become impure or make something impure, because the Rav is saying that's actually not the main point. The main point is that they don't exist in the Halachic framework. And you might ask, well, why do you have to tether it to a specific halacha, whether they can or can't become impure? Just say simply, they have no halachic bearing. See, there's a very good reason for that, because the Kulei Alma, everybody agrees, including the Ravit. There are many areas of halacha where non-Jewish people do have an halachic status. For example, if a non-Jewish person designates a particular item to be idolatry, then a Jewish person may never have any benefit from that item ever in life. Void in other areas. So in other words, you see, non-Jewish people do have halachic designation. 
ולכן אין הרב את יוכל לומר שעקום הם כבהם סתם בכל מוקם. So the rabbi therefore could never make a generalized statement that non-Jewish people are always in the same halachic category as animals, in other words, have no halachic status. That's why he has to be more specific and he has to explain. They can't cause or become impure. In other words, what he's qualifying for us is in the broader sense of the laws of purity and impurity, the designation of a non-Jewish person is non-existent like the designation of an animal would be non-existent. You never put an animal in a mikveh. There's no such thing as an animal making something impure. So we get their head there, in the category of laws associated with impurity, they have no status. They're like air. So therefore they can disqualify the animal from being kosher, but they can't give it the status of something which would be impure. Now, what we're seeing over here is effectively the Rambam saying that even in laws of kosher, non-kosher, pure and impure, specifically pure and impure, a non-Jewish person has an halachic designation, whereas the Ravid says they don't. That will lead us to another conversation and a very fascinating conversation, that brings to another debate that the Rambam and the Ravid have, both aligned with their perspectives, in Ba'akum Shayach Geder Protis, whether it is possible for there to be specific divine providence for non Jew or not. Seeing as the Rambam believes that a non Jewish person has an halachic designation in all areas of halacha, so therefore, such an individual who is considered by the Torah is considered by Hashem for personal divine providence. But according to the Raiva who say they have no designation in Halacha except for certain unique laws, likewise, they have no designation for personalized divine providence. And this is what Rashi is actually talking about in that third Rashi about the protection over the nations of Canaan. Rashi gave us two commentaries there. Either to say that their protection was their own people who shielded them, or it was divine protection. Those align with the two opinions, respectively, of the Rambam and the Ravid about the principle of personalized divine providence. If you go with the first explanation that Rashi said, then effectively what he's saying is that halachically, a non-Jewish person has no halachic designation other than the fact that they don't exist, like the Ravid says. For which reason you can't say that the protection the Pasuk is referring to is divine protection. That they used to have this personalized divine protection and now it's been removed from them. Because then that would actually be endorsing them as halachic reality. Because the language that we use over here for Hashem's protection is tzilom, which is actually a shadow. And a shadow is always relative to the body that the shadow represents. Your shadow looks like you, like your profile. So the divine protection, which is called tzel, is somehow linked to their profile, to their reality. So according to the Raiva, they don't have a spiritual profile that is relevant in Torah. So therefore they don't have a protective profile from Hashem that would be specific to them. 
Right? So it's not possible they have a profile. So they can't have personalized divine providence. If, if it can't be divine providence, divine protection, the only other alternative is to explain that their shadow or protection is the great people of their community. Not this divine canopy of protection that is now removed from them. Whereas, according to the second commentary, those who are non-Jewish people, they have a spiritual profile. Like the Rambam argues. And therefore they have personalized divine providence and protection. Therefore you could speak about divine protection that is unique to them. That relates to their reality. And that was removed from them. So, take it down into a deeper level and understand how this is according to Hasidus. When we talk about the so called shadow or protective canopy of Hashem, what it means is in the same way as a person moves, their shadow moves. So, the implication over here is that we do things in our world and it causes a divine reaction. Like the Baal Shentov explains, the Pasuk says Hashem is your shadow. The Baal Shentov explains that what that means is the actions we take here on earth cause similar reactions up on high. Like the human shadow. That literally the exact same movements that the human makes, the shadow makes as well. That's with regards to the Jewish people, and something similar belongs to or relates to the non-Jewish world as well. Because as we well know, Hashem never withholds the reward from any creature. Therefore, even the nations of the world who are not Jewish and not bound by the Torah, when they do things that are of value, that creates a response from on high. Something that comes from the heavens and is allocated to them here on earth. Which means simply, when the non-Jewish nations do good things, like observing the Noachad laws or other good things, it generates reward for them. And if they reject what they should do, or they behave in a way that is inappropriate, then the shadow, so to speak, is no longer protection, it is punitive. Now that principle would only work according to the Rambam's perspective, that the nations of the world also have a spiritual profile, and therefore there's a a spiritual response from on high. Then that would only be the way that would be the only way to explain how it's possible that their behavior could elicit a very specific response from Hashem. As the Rambam said, because they also have personalized divine supervision and prominence. Whereas the Rivet who argues that the nations of the world have no spiritual profile of relevance in Judaism, it's not possible that they could generate a response from Hashem that is specifically relevant to their particular actions and circumstances, which fits 
with the Rivet's argument that the nations of the world do not have personalized divine providence. Then, according to the Rivet, how does reward and punishment work in the non-Jewish world? So the Ravitz argument would be, well, there is a reason why there should be reward or punishment for them, which is almost secondary because because they're here in this world to facilitate what the Jewish people need to do in this world. And therefore, when they facilitate, they get the bracha. And when they don't, they lose the bracha and, and get punitive measures. To illustrate the Ravitz point, we actually see this in the animal world. We have this situation where an animal that is involved in a, in a lewd act with a Jewish person has to be killed. Even though you can't say that the, the animal is a sinner. <laughs> the, the Gemara asks the question, Rashi brings the question, what did the, what did the animal do wrong? The animal doesn't have free choice. So the conclusion of the sages is because this animal led to something which corrupted a human, therefore, the natural fallout is the animal also is punished. But it's not like when you punish someone for having done something wrong. The thinking is because the reason animals were created were, was only to facilitate human need. If you have an animal that's not facilitating human need. And to the contrary, is actually bringing downfall to a Jewish person. Such an animal does not deserve to exist, and therefore it is killed. So the Ravid will tell us that's exactly how it works with reward and punishment with regards to the nations of the world. Seeing as the entire purpose of creation is for the Jewish people. So what has to happen is that those instructions given to the rest of the world, the seven Noachide laws, have to be like a mitzvah will be a totally different category of mitzvahs to ours. Our mitzvahs are self-sufficient. They have a value of their own. Whereas the seven Noachide laws would be secondary to the Jewish um, objective. So their mitzvahs will facilitate what Jews need to do. Elsewhere, the Rebbe goes into this in great detail. The Noachide laws really are to create a stable society, a sustainable society. And thereby, once you have a sustainable, stable society, then the Jews can come in and turn that society into a place that can accommodate godliness. Through our observance of Torah mitzvahs, which obviously we can do far better if we're living in a healthy, sustainable reality. Therefore, in the Ravid's view, any reward or punishment that would be associated with the seven Noachad laws, would just be a natural consequence, matter, and a lower consequence, which would be a factor of whether or not they're serving their purpose. So if the seven Noachad laws help the Jews to be able to achieve what they have to do, then of course those people who observe the seven Noachad laws deserve reward. And if not, they deserve punishment. And that also, by the way, explains to us why in the seven Noachite laws there's no distinction between what sin it is to determine what punishment it gets because anybody who transgresses any of the seven Noachite laws is executed. 
It's not like that sales shadow personalized Ashkochapratis relationship, which differs depending on what a person has done. So the Rambam believes that there is that personalized value to the non-Jewish world and their efforts, and therefore personalized reward and punishment, and the Raiva does not. So now we take the difference between the two explanations in Rashi and we see them through the lens both of the halachic element and the spiritual element. As we've already noted, the first opinion which says the protection that the Canaanites had came from their decent Canaanite people, where that's the Ravid's opinion, because that's fundamentally that fundamentally means that the non-Jewish world doesn't really have a substantive spiritual profile, and therefore, whatever reward or punishment comes their way is kind of like an automatic because of the purpose they serve in the greater picture rather than in terms of what they personally have done. And therefore, Rashi, in that interpretation, won't speak about divine protection, but rather their personal protection. That if they have people doing what is meant to be done, servicing the greater good, being part of Hashem's goal for creation, which is to facilitate a a habitable, an inhabitable world, a world of decency. So then, that creates their strength. But it doesn't give them the power to actually reach into the heavens as we can through our mitzvahs and change the nature of specific things. Whereas the second commentary Rashi brings, that aligns with the Rambam, that the non-Jewish world has a meaningful spiritual profile. And they do have personal divine providence. Even though the Rambam would also agree that the fact that non-Jewish people exist and the fact that they have a code of seven laws is also to facilitate the Jewish objective. But the Rambam's difference of opinion is that once they were empowered or commanded, instructed with those particular mitzvahs, especially seeing as the Rambam's view is that they have to acknowledge that the seven Noahide laws were instructed in the Torah and informed to the public by Moshe Rabbeinu then you have to say that they're actually fulfilling an instruction from Hashem through which through which they can actually draw from heaven a response that is aligned with and calibrated to their actions. Therefore, from that perspective, they certainly could have a divine shadow a canopy of protection. That is tzilom, tzilom. It is their personalized protection, and then at some point they lose that. And that will explain one last query that we should have about Rashi. You could ask the question, why did Yoshua and Kalev have to get into that level of detail to say that their protection is gone, it's lapsed, it's expired? What did they say before this? They said, if Hashem wants us, He'll protect us and make us succeed. That they had to say. And the fact that Yeshua and Kalev told the people, don't rebel against Hashem, and thereby you won't have to be afraid. As Rashi explained. 
which mes- which the, the message is you're following in Hashem's way and therefore you have no reason even by the natural order to be afraid of the inhabitants as well as information that you will eat them up like a person eats bread that not only will we have ease of conquest but that Hashem will give it to us in such a way that we feel the love all of that was important. Because all of that, it described the state of mind that the Jewish people had to achieve. But why do we have to know what state they're in? That they're vulnerable because their protection has been removed. Why do we have to know that? We just have to know that Hashem is on our side. We don't have to know that they're also in a bad way. Just to word it differently. When they say, if Hashem wants us, and the land will be given to us, and don't rebel against Hashem. So we have all the assurances in the world. Why do we have to know the details of how bad things are for them? Obeys, to put it a little differently, let's say that Taka, we're going to swallow them alive. Surely that already tells us that they have no protection. They, they, we're going to eat them alive. We're going to swallow them like bread. So why did, Rash, why did uh, Kalev and Yoshua have to get to the details of their protection is gone? And then, how come afterwards they repeat again, don't fear them, but you already told me, don't be afraid. Why do you have to say it again? Dalet also have to understand At the beginning of their conversation, they said, "As long as you don't rebel against Hashem, you naturally will not be afraid." And then they come back again and they say, "And Hashem is with us, Don't be afraid of them. Why? Why do we need all this information?" And the answer to that is interestingly, the Rambam tells us that you. Your Shalmi tells us that when they came to conquer Israel, there were actually going to be three categories of Canaanites. Mesim, those who were going to die in the wars. Vegerashtomimiyad, those who were going to immediately be chased out of the land, Bitulagamre, that completely disappear from the context. And then Agoroshenelachar Shetifrez, the Pasuk tells us in Mishpatim, there were those that only once the Jews started to become productive in Eretz Yisrael, then they would be uh, expelled. And in the interim, till that happened, they would be slaves to the Jewish people. So put that into the context of what we've learned. Even when you go with the second view of Rashi, which is aligned to the Rambam, which acknowledges that the nations of the world do have personal divine providence and they do have personal spiritual allocations of positive or negative depending on their actions. Like the Rambam said, they have divine providence. And a movement of Pashtas, anybody can clearly understand. The nature of their divine providence is nothing like the nature of the divine providence that the Jewish people experience. Like we said before about mitzvahs, that when we do a mitzvah, the mitzvah is the value itself. It's not to serve as something else, whereas they are here to serve as something else, the greater picture. That's what Yeshua and Kalev wanted to emphasize. First, they had to address the fact, you think they're strong people? Let's talk about that. 
You think they're strong? Don't worry about them. As long as you don't rebel against Hashem, so you don't have to be afraid of them. There's no reason to be afraid of them. No matter, even if they're strong and they are not vulnerable, we don't have to worry about that because as long as we're aligned with Hashem, we'll be good. That's message number one. But then they added to their message. So even if they were strong, we wouldn't have to be afraid. But guess what? They're actually not so strong. They're vulnerable. Of course, that would make sense according to the first explanation of Rashi, that they no longer have those people who protect them. But even according to the second explanation of Rashi, that they had divine protection. You don't have to worry, the divine protection has lapsed. Not only that, not only are they vulnerable, but Rashi Rakitonu. Right, that was the last message that they said. Hashem itonu al Hashem is with us, not just He's with us; He's only with us. We're in the exact opposite situation to what they are. They're in a situation where the divine protection is gone, and we're in the in a, in a space where the divine protection is only with us. So not only are we not exposed as they're exposed, and Hashem itonu. But Hashem is close with us. That implies that when the nations of the world, if they do have divine providence, even when they are protected, it's from a distance. Like a tzel, like a shadow. It's not really the real person. It's not part of the person. It's outside of the person. But the relationship Hashem has with us and the divine providence we experience is not Separate or remote or distant. It's literally with us. Hashem and His oversight are completely one with us. And therefore the message is don't only, don't only get to a point that you don't have to be afraid of those people because those people are vulnerable. Have no fear at all. It's not just that they are no longer the rightful inhabitants of the land, because the land has been given to us. And they're only like our bread that we can do with as we please. We have to recognize that they cease to exist. They have lost any value, any protection, any divine input. And so you could say that that is... The, the three different categories that we see actually happen practically when they came into the, into the land. There were those who they had to kill. Then, there were those who made peace with the Jewish people and accepted the, the seven Ochaid laws and served the Jewish people. And then there was a, a unique scenario, there were the Girgoshim who ran off to Africa. What happened to the Girgashim from Africa? Later on, much later on, at the time of Alexander the Great, when he came to, to Israel, very interesting interactions that are recorded about his time over there, including certain people who had tightness complaints against the Jewish people that he settled. One of them with the Girgashim. They came with a whole complaint that their land had been stolen, and Alexander was able to completely dismiss them. And what happened was the Jewish people got these ready-to-go fields and vineyards, even though it was a Shemitah year and nobody could work in their own fields. Suddenly they had all these fields with the Girgashim who literally ran 
and they were able to use it for themselves. Implying, of course, that the message over here is that Hashem is absolutely with us. We have to recognize that. And whatever might seem to be opposition to us, to our Yiddishkeit, is like nothing, has no metzias, and certainly cannot interfere with what we need to achieve.